Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's The Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, May 23rd, 2022. Welcome into a brand new broadcast week here on the Guy Benson Show from the Tony Snow Radio Studios at the Fox News Bureau in our nation's capital. I am Guy Benson. Very, very honored and happy and grateful to have you all here with me. Between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every single weekday, those three hours together. And if you can't listen live for the entire three-hour portion, which we, of course, recommend. We do like to remind you that there is a podcast available. It is free. It is on demand. If you are relatively new to the show, we give you an extra warm welcome and shout-out. Thank you. If you don't know much about me, I'm the political editor at townhall.com, also a Fox News contributor. Indeed, tonight, I will be on special report with Brett Baer. Joining the panel this evening Looking forward to that with the whole crew over there, probably around 6.45 p.m. Eastern. We've got our topics cooking already, so hope to see you there on Fox News Channel in the 6 p.m. hour a little bit later on this evening. Here on the radio show side, we've got quite a lineup for you, starting later this hour with Molly Hemingway. Looking forward to talking with the editor-in-chief of The Federalist and also a Fox News contributor. Then our colleague, Britt Hume senior political analyst at Fox News. He will join us in our next hour, as will Josh Krasauer, who's the politics editor at National Journal. So a lot of politics on our plate collectively here today. In our final hour, just after 5 p.m. Eastern, Dr. Nicole Sapphire is going to be here. And, yep, I'm going to ask her about monkeypox. The headlines are growing the images look pretty ghastly when you see these lesions on people's skin and you hear about some of the other symptoms that are involved with monkeypox. Is that something that we should actually be worried about on any sort of wide scale? Is it being overblown for panic, clicks, and views? We will ask Dr. Sapphire about that, plus an update in the COVID wars the return of mask mandates in schools in a number of cities. They're coming back. I told you this was going to happen. We will get the scientific medical perspective from Dr. Sapphire a little bit later on on today's show. We begin, however, on this Monday with an update. In fact, do we have the sounder, the voter suppression update sounder here? Because we want to bring you one of these. It's a Guy Benson Show Jim Crow on Steroids Georgia Voter Suppression Update. Brace yourselves, America. Wait till you hear about the suppression in the state of Georgia. The racist, worse than Jim Crow, 
Jim Crow on steroids. Remember when he said Jim Eagle? I don't know what that exactly meant. But the president of the United States angrily insisted that voter suppression by the Republicans for racist reasons was a scourge on the country. Last year and into this year, that was what he asserted to be true. Of course, he was following the lead of Stacey Abrams, who wants to be governor down there in Georgia. They've got a big primary election on both sides, multiple races in Georgia tomorrow. Much of corporate America jumped on the bandwagon about the voter suppression evils being perpetrated by Republicans in Georgia, especially Governor Brian Kemp, who a lot of them had said, especially on the Democratic side, had stolen the election from Stacey Abrams in 2018. Now, that was a lie. That was a conspiratorial tinfoil hat lie. But that's the type of thing that she had been peddling in that state for years. In fact, it made her a superstar. Stacey Abrams was a state rep in Georgia until she ran and lost and then refused to concede. Then she became a real star and a celebrity and very rich, actually. It was a massive boon to her profile and to her bank account to be an election truther. And the party that hates election lies and election conspiracy theories as dangerous and anti-democracy, actually, they tend to love those things when it's their side doing them. Which is how Stacey Abrams became a, a household name and a superstar in Democratic politics. And her latest big push to lead up for her, I guess in her mind, re-election campaign for governor... She wanted another bite at the apple. It's going to be, in all likelihood, a rematch this year, Kemp and Abrams. And to prime the pump for all of that, she was talking endlessly about Jim Crow 2.0 and voter suppression. Well, early and absentee voting ended this past weekend. They have a deadline. It is over. They are tabulating those numbers. Tomorrow's Election Day, and then we will have the results. And just as a spoiler alert, unless something really shocking happens, the major statewide races, the matchups are basically set. It'll be Herschel Walker against the incumbent Raphael Warnock in the Senate race. Then it'll be Stacey Abrams on the Democratic side against, in all likelihood, Governor Kemp in that rematch that I just mentioned. But we'll see. The voters are having their say. They've had it for now a few weeks in the early voting. Then tomorrow is Election Day. But what we were told, and not just sort of some hand-wringing concern, we were told angrily, loudly, right? It was a, a very shrill misinformation and disinformation campaign for months. What the state of Georgia was doing was suppressing the vote, trying to prevent people from voting, especially people of color and trying to hold down voter par- uh, voter participation and turnout for their own partisan ends. That's what they said. It was a racist voter suppression scheme that was worse than Jim Crow. Right? Jim Crow was a period, a very dark period in our country, in the South, of system, like actual systemic racism. Systematic, government-enforced, bigotry-fueled discrimination. That is what Jim Crow was, like racial segregation, that sort of thing. 
And Joe Biden, the president of the United States, Mr. Healer, Mr. Uniter, Mr. Back to Normalcy guy, said that the Republican voting reforms in Georgia were worse than Jim Crow. Jim Crow on steroids. In fact, let's just recall together what he said in a speech this year, earlier this year in Georgia, cut 25. History has never been kind to those who've sided with voter suppression over voters' rights. And it would be even less kind for those who side with election subversion. So I ask every elected official in America, how do you want to be remembered? At consequential moments in history, they present a choice. Do you want to be on the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be on the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? This is the moment to decide to defend our elections, to defend our democracy. So you can be MLK and John Lewis and Abraham Lincoln, or you can be Bull Connor unleashing fire hoses and dogs on peaceful protesters or George Wallace, a virulent segregationist, or Jefferson Davis, who ran the Confederacy, an absolute traitor to the country. That's the choice that people can make. And if you make the choice, Biden, the point he was making here was, if you make the choice to support the so-called voter suppression law in Georgia, you're taking the side of the racists. There was no subtlety there. He also called defenders or supporters of the Georgia law, domestic enemies in that same speech. You can just feel the unity emanating from Joe Biden at all times. Well, that's all the prelude to the actual update that I wanted to bring you now that absentee and early voting has come to a close in Georgia. And I hope again that you are maybe sitting down because you will be shocked and horrified by how much suppression went on in Georgia. So four years ago, before the suppression, before the Georgia Republicans came in and decided to pass their racist law, four years ago, as of now, the total equivalent, the number of people who had voted at this point, early absentee in the primaries in Georgia, 2018, Big Democratic wave year, by the way, the backlash against Trump, all of that. 320,515. That was the number four years ago as of now. What is the new number, the final absentee and early tally in Georgia in 2022 after Jim Crow 2.0, Jim Crow on steroids, voter suppression was instituted? 857,401. Turnout exploded. That is the opposite of suppression. There is no suppression. It's a lie. It was always a lie. In fact, it was a racist lie. And the numbers speak for themselves. Are there vast numbers of people who are rushing to the media saying, I went to go vote and I couldn't? I was suppressed? No. 
In fact, there was a Washington Post story sort of surprised about the surge in voting despite the controversial law. There is no despite. There's only a despite if you bought in to all of the propaganda and disinformation. Maybe sweet Nina Jankowitz in her free time can track down all the people responsible for an actual, honest-to-God disinformation campaign about the Georgia election law last year and into this year. They would have you believe a bunch of people, especially of certain skin colors, would not be allowed to vote or would struggle mightily to vote. And that's not what happened at all. Where are all the people who died of dehydration because it was illegal for them to drink water on Election Day or whatever that lie was? Not a single one. That talking point was absolutely false all along. We told you that here. If you listen to this show, you had this stuff fact-checked up and down many, many times. But in mainstream media, in progressive activist circles, in the Democratic Party, the messaging was extremely different. So that Washington Post story I told you about a moment ago, I was like, wow, look, this voting is uh, actually surging. They were talking to some voters on the ground in Georgia. Here's one of them, a black person, who said this, I had heard they were going to try to deter us in any way possible. To go in there and vote as easily as I did and to be treated with the respect that I knew I deserved as an American citizen, I was really thrown back. Which on some levels a very satisfying quote to read to you, but it actually makes me angry. Here is an African-American voter who was told by people that they trust, including all the way up to the president of the United States, that they were going to be targeted so they couldn't vote because of their skin color. And they, they decided to brave it anyway. They decided to show up and defy the supposed suppression anyway. And they were expecting almost a, a very disturbing reality to await them. And in fact, they just voted easily and were treated with great respect. And that threw them back. I was really thrown back, this person said, because of how simple and easy the process was and how kind and respectful the poll workers were. This person was lied to and made afraid for absolutely no good justifiable reason. And there's a lot of other people like that. And you have to wonder, will there ever be accountability? Will there ever be accountability for the people who perpetrated these lies? Now, the Democrats who did it, they many of them will be on the ballot in November, including Stacey Abrams. More on her coming up later, by the way. Joe Biden may or may not be on the ballot again in a couple of years. His party, his legacy, his policies are on the ballot in November. What about the media members who lied about this endlessly? I saw there was a graphic on the screen just a, a moment ago on MSNBC. Here's what the screen graphic said. Georgia early voter turnout up 212 percent from 2020. 
So I tweeted that with just one headline after another last year from MSNBC. Justice Department takes aim at Georgia GOP's voter suppression law. GOP advances new voting restrictions worst since the Jim Crow era. Georgia ground zero for voter suppression. Stacey Abrams run for governor will test GOP voter suppression. Those are just a small smattering of their headlines. And now they're like, oh, look at that. Turnouts up 212 percent in the early vote, which we said that they were going to try to shut down. Will there be accountability for members of the media? What about all the corporations that bought in and knuckled under and put out statements? Major League Baseball, I'm looking mostly at you, Mr. Commissioner. Will any journalists follow up with these companies? Hey, you said this was going to happen. You denounced the law. Do you have any updated comments or thoughts on this? Delta Airlines, Coca-Cola, Patagonia, UPS, Google, Citibank, BlackRock, Aflac, Afhacks. Like, will anyone follow up with these people? I doubt it. Because the people who are supposed to hold power accountable in the media were actively part of the disinformation campaign. They were some of the chief liars in this whole thing. But the numbers speak the truth loudly and clearly. We were right. They were wrong. And it matters. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. And because Georgia is such a focus, and I think a ground zero of our national politics has been now for three years, that's why I'm focusing so much on it, not just because we have a big listener base down in Atlanta, 106.3 Extra, although that certainly helps. Stacey Abrams, the nominee in waiting for governor down there, she just gave a speech this weekend in which she said something rather interesting. Cut 16. I am tired of hearing about being the best state in the country to do business when we are the worst state in the country to live. She's tired of hearing about how great Georgia is for doing business when we are, quote, the worst state in the country to live. And she went on to list some of the problems that she sees in Georgia. But her takeaway was, Georgia, we're the worst. We're the worst in the country. Interesting sentiment coming from a sitting governor, don't you think? Right, she fancies herself the incumbent. Why is she still in Georgia? Why are people moving to Georgia? Why is the population of Georgia increasing if it's such a hellhole that everyone hates? Governor Kemp put out a tweet saying, actually, I disagree. I I think this is a great place to live. I feel like that might be the right position with Georgians. Just a thought. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. 
No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, I'm Guy Benson. Thank you very much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is that website that we always direct you to. The podcast is free every day. GuyBensonShow.com. With us now is Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief at The Federalist, Fox News contributor, co-author of Justice on Trial, and author of her more recent book, Rigged. She's at MZ Hemingway on Twitter. Molly, great to have you back. Great to be here with you. I spent a portion of last evening trying to pressure you via text messages to blow off a family wedding and come to a party that we're hosting instead. And I was unsuccessful, and I just want to register my disappointment, but also understanding that you're probably making the correct decision because family is family, but we're going to miss you. Well, as I explained, too, I would normally blow off a wedding, but it's a cousin wedding, and cousin weddings are the best weddings because you have – None of the responsibility that is normally associated with a wedding, but you, um, but your families, you kind of have a point of privilege, and that's great. And so, I'm really looking forward to it. And also, it's a beloved cousin, so there's that. Okay. Well, I mean that. Okay, fine. That all, I guess, counts, and I'll allow it this time, Molly. But <laughs> another snub or two, and you're going to be, you know, in the doghouse the way producer Christina is. She keeps trying to invite herself to parties. <laughs> That I, I invited them eventually, and then she's like, oh, we can't make it. I'm actually starting to wonder if it's passive-aggressive. In any case, <laughs> Molly Hemingway, let's talk about the Sussman trial and this development just in the last few days about what the former campaign manager for Hillary Clinton admitted at trial, admitted on the record, Robbie Mook was talking about the – or at least one tentacle, one element of the whole Russia story – that the left and the media told us for many years, and he confirmed that a leak on one debunked part of it was approved specifically, personally, by Hillary Clinton herself. If you would, just give us your thoughts on that development and then what you're making overall of this trial thus far as it plays out. Well, mostly what I like about the trial is the stuff just like what you mentioned. You get under oath testimony from people confirming what you know some of us knew and some of us had reported, but that hadn't been widely known, like that Hillary Clinton was personally involved in spreading and promulgating this Russia collusion hoax. Now, most of the time when we think about the Russia collusion hoax, we might think of that made up phony dossier with allegations, dramatic allegations that never quite uh, were borne out. But a big early part of it was this thing called the Alpha Bank, where supposedly the Trump team had a secret server connecting with Russia. And she was personally involved, according to her campaign manager, with getting with uh, running to the media with that. Also, Jake Sullivan, the current uh, national security advisor, was the one who was used to kind of um, put this out there even though they admit themselves that they didn't necessarily believe this stuff to be true. They had no reason, uh, by the way, no ability uh, to confirm it. Someone who also amplified it at the time was Nina Jankowitz, who is the recently defenestrated 
truth czar or whatever they had her doing there for a while. She bought into this and said the Alpha Bank story confirms the very worst that we believed about Trump. It actually confirmed nothing because it is not only unconfirmed but debunked. So the disinformation industry pretends that it's about fighting disinformation, but so much of it is about spreading disinformation. And yes, Nina Jankowicz uh, perpetrated that lie, also the Christopher Steele lie about that dossier, also the lie that the Hunter Biden laptop was itself disinformation. So when, when people say she's a disinformation expert, you should think of that as she's an expert in spreading disinformation. Certainly oh, yeah, no, she, she's like, I, I've likened her jokingly to kind of O.J. Simpson tracking down the real killer, right? That's, that's what this is. <laughs> Yeah, she's uh, she's she's got skills, but you have to jujitsu it. But I was disappointed to see that Michael Chertoff was the new person who's in charge of the office or handling the office while it's on while it's suspended. Uh, you cannot have these people who are associated who don't have. But you just can't have this office. Period. And we should be on guard because bureaucracies like to exert power over individuals and over the people, and they're going to keep trying unless they are unless you have a vigorous fight from Congress to defund anything associated with this ministry of truth. Yeah. And so this is what I said, actually, from the beginning. I said I was grateful that someone like Sweet Nina was put in charge because she's so ridiculous that it's self-discrediting. If you put someone more respectable up there, like Chertoff, who I have no real beef with personally, but if there is the whole apparatus in place, I am skeptical of the whole thing. And, Molly, let's bring it back then to what we're now learning, some of the myths and disinformation being thrown out in stark relief. And, and you and others have been talking about this for a very long time. Some of this stuff would not really count as, you know, a, a revelation in the book of many of you who've been paying attention. But I think for the media, at least in the public, here we have a trial underway where a lot of the things that were said and sold – and treated as at least credible, if not true, are really getting shot through with holes at this point. And Robbie Mook well, admitting, yes, Hillary Clinton gave the green light to the Alpha Bank thing to get that leaked and put into the bloodstream to give it some credibility and, and try to you know impact the election there. The overall story colored Trump's entire presidency. It hung over the presidency for years, and we were treated to breathless, constant coverage when the scandal, quote unquote, was being delved into and different little elements of it were coming to light through various leaks. Now we have a process underway through Durham and this trial that is sort of walking back a lot of it, scaling back a lot of the rhetoric and peeling back these layers to show that there was no there there. And Molly, the coverage has been close to non-existent and certainly nowhere near the universe of the, you know, decibel level and the tone of the coverage for five years on this stuff. And in some ways, it's like they try to treat people like you as total weirdos for talking about the Sussman trial and talking about Durham. Like this is some right wing, strange obsession about an old news story that appears to be the current trick that they're trying to use. So it's more than just 
showing that there was no there there. What this trial is showing, what the testimony is showing, is that there was a conspiracy to invent a Russia collusion narrative, that this conspiracy involved all the way up to Hillary Clinton herself, that it also wrapped in FBI officials, media officials, and it is far and away the biggest scandal of modern political life. I mean, there's nothing that even comes close to what was done. In terms of destruction to the country, it brought down any regard people had for the FBI or other intelligence agencies. It risked global conflict. It cost so much money, so much time and energy. It affected the quality of administration officials that you could even get. They tried to stop the peaceful transfer of power, you might remember, that this hoax was involved in trying to stop the Electoral College, the inauguration, things that people claim to care about a lot after January 6, 2021. Um, it did, and in fact, I don't even think you can look at what happened in the 2020 election aftermath without understanding how much the this conspiracy to refuse to acknowledge and accept the 2020, 2016 election results played into what we have now. So, no, the media aren't covering it, but they're not covering it because they're co-conspirators. You don't expect co-conspirators to come clean unless forced to. And so the only good news out of this whole thing is that even recent studies show once again that uh, the already flatlined support for corporate media or trust in corporate media has gone down even more. We're getting single yeah, and- digits for a lot of people. It's very bad. Molly, I would say – at least the way I would maybe frame this is we have found the collusion. The actual collusion has been discovered. And it's not the collusion that they said. It is the collusion that they did. And it wasn't just that it was our intelligence agencies, the Clinton campaign and the media. You might remember that they also did it with Russian agents because one of the key sources for the dossier was someone who our government had previously identified uh, or suspected of being a Russian agent. So if they were looking for someone working with Russians to effectively yeah, the key subsource, we also found that as well. Oh, good. Good times. Uh, Molly, I want to shift a little bit to another subject that you cover a fair amount. And I saw you were tweeting about this the other day. There has been a bit of a dust up especially on left-wing social media, about an archbishop making a decision to deny Holy Communion to Speaker Pelosi. She talks a lot about her Catholicism. She is also an abortion on demand for any reason through birth person, uh, which, of course, flies in the face of her church's teachings. So she has now been denied communion by this archbishop, and there's been a very furious backlash. There's been some open conversation about now taxing churches punitively, which is an interesting uh, theory or an interesting idea being floated by the people who talk all the time about the separation of church and state, I guess until they want the state to punish the church for something that they don't like. There was an NPR story that just completely got basic facts wrong about Catholic doctrine, and this seems to happen a lot. I mean, I understand, Molly, that newsrooms, elite newsrooms, uh, tend to be very— secular, progressive places, but you would think they might hire one or two people just to sort of run some stuff past them to make sure that they are not completely embarrassing themselves with religious illiteracy. But this type of thing happens all the time, whether it's in the New York Times or the Washington Post. Most recently, this was NPR. Talk about that. 
Well, and in this case, you're absolutely right that you should have people with a basic level of religious literacy in your newsroom or to have access to them. Religion can be kind of complicated to cover well, and people get very sensitive about things being written about incorrectly. In this case, I think it would have been sufficient to simply have known a single Roman Catholic. So NPR (laughs) wrote about what the situation in San Francisco, and they described what communion is for a Roman Catholic, and they got it so wrong. It was a level of ignorance that was stunning to me. I mean, one of the few things that people might know is that, and I'm not Roman Catholic myself, I'm Lutheran, but we also believe in the real presence in communion, which means you you believe you're actually receiving Christ's body and blood. Roman Catholics have been open and very, you know, they've talked about it all the time that they believe that, and yet NPR was calling it a symbolic meal of of bread and wine and that it was a memorial meal. None of this is doctrinally accurate. And this is important because it also gets to what's happening with the archbishop in San Francisco, why he is, uh, why he did institute this discipline on Nancy Pelosi. And they need to understand these nuances because it was a very long process and it was a very long effort that the church took to get her to see the sin of her public scandal. She's not just pro-abortion. She's radically pro-abortion and has pushed legislation in support of it. You know, not just someone who has a personal opinion that's slightly at odds. And so you need to know those contours, those nuances, and you're not going to get that if you don't even know the really obvious stuff. You know, Molly, it reminds me of a little exchange. My favorite TV comedy of all time is a show called Arrested Development. And the first three seasons are just, I think, the gold standard for me in terms of how much it made me laugh. And there was a back and forth between a girl on the show and her uncle, and she wants to make a fashion statement. So she says, I really want to go get one of those T necklaces, like the necklaces that people have with a little letter T. Where can I get that? And her uncle looks at her and responds, that's a cross. And... (laughs) She responds to him, across from where? And and that is sort of – she's playing the role here of the journos when it comes that, to religion. Like the character works at NPR, apparently. Right, right exactly. Maybe Funke is now the chief religion correspondent for NPR. Then we had this just earlier today on The View. Whoopi Goldberg, who has very, very strong, extremely loud opinions, uh, as do they all – on that panel, uh, and she really is fired up about um, abortion. She loves abortion. Uh, She also had some thoughts for this archbishop earlier today in Cut 17. The archbishop of San Francisco mm, is calling for Speaker Nancy Pelosi to be denied receiving communion because of her pro-choice stance. He's one of the priests who also called for President Biden to be denied sacrament. This is not your job, dude. That is not, you can't, that is not up to you to make that decision. Okay, so, Molly, I'm not a Catholic. I'm not going to weigh in on my personal belief on whether Pelosi or Biden should be denied communion. That is far beyond my pay grade. However, it is not far beyond the pay grade of the archbishop. It actually is literally his job. But Whoopi Goldberg indignantly sort of snarkily says it's not his job, dude. I just have to ask you, are you as impressed as I am with The View? Because there is so much effort that goes into being this wrong and ignorant so frequently with such consistency. It takes work. And, and I and I really want to commend them for putting in that work. I think they, this is like the second major religion that they've offended or, or 
spoken improperly oh, yeah, about in recent weeks. <laughs> yeah, that was Whoopi again. Censored for some uh, stuff that was believed to be anti-Semitic or something like that. Um, yeah, it is. A, it's it's really impressive how ignorant they are. And you know, this is a show that has staff that are supposed to help the hosts so that they can be informed when they talk about things. But you wouldn't know it because it's not just Whoopi. I think every single person who's currently on The View is in a running contest for most ignorant or able to say the most boring and simultaneously stupid thing that they can. Um, it's an offense, but it's part of a bigger offense, which is our corporate media make it out like women are all stupid, that they're all lefties. They don't accurately convey the complexity of women's discussions and the complexity of our viewpoints, and they don't even represent half the country on that show. They've got five lefties, including a woman who uh, is supposed to be the token conservative, but you wouldn't know it from a single thing she says. And this is, you know, it's just, it's very frustrating for the half of the women in the country who are not ever represented by these big yeah, It's, it's like, okay, well, thank you, Whoopi, and thank you, Sonny, and thank you, Joy. Let's now get the other viewpoint from Anna Navarro, right, our conservative. <laughs> Good times. Thanks. Molly Hemingway, I would love to see you on that show from time to time. I don't know if I'd want to put you through that, you, although maybe I would after me? you, I mean, well, what, you're skipping my party. You? <laughs> you are skipping my party. So maybe I'm going to consign you to The View for a week. And that'll be the last time you ever miss a party of mine. How about that? Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief at The Federalist, Fox News contributor, author of two best-selling books. Molly, enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, bye. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Back on the Guy Benson Show, a horrible story out of New York City where a 48-year-old man, an investment researcher at Goldman Sachs named Daniel Enriquez, was shot dead in the subway in the late morning yesterday on his way to brunch. Just going to go have some brunch, getting close to noon, and he was approached and shot by a stranger totally unprovoked. He was killed on the spot. Police are looking for a man named Andrew Abdullah in connection with this. Abdullah has 19 prior arrests. I saw a story that Mayor Adams in New York might be starting to test the presidential waters. Maybe he can just focus on New York City and the crime wave. Just a thought. Another hour coming up on The Guy Benson Show. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. And then around the clock on demand on our podcast. GuyBensonShow.com is the one-stop shop for all of it. GuyBensonShow.com. 
on the TV element of my work. I'll be joining the panel tonight with Brett Baer and company for special report. That's around 645 Eastern on Fox News Channel. Hope to see you there. Fox News alert as we enter this middle hour. The Dow surging today up 618 points to 31,880 at the close. With us now is Britt Hume, senior political analyst at Fox News Channel. And Britt, as always, it's good to have you here. Welcome back. Glad to do it, Guy. Glad to talk to you. I want to start with some of the spin over the weekend from the Biden White House, from the chief of staff and others, sort of slapping each other on the back and high-fiving over these 70,000 pounds of European baby formula being flown into the United States I think Biden wrongly identified it as 70,000 tons. He was off by an order of magnitude. But I'm not sure bringing in baby formula from Germany with massive shortages that they've ignored for months here in the United States is really, I don't know, the win for them that they are trying to pretend that it is? I guess it's a lot, I guess it's better than saying we have we have nothing to offer to deal with this problem. I mean they've I mean I mean that's all they have. They this is what they've done and and uh and you know it's it's a problem that's embarrassing that we would even face in a country like this at a time like this. And I suppose the the feeling must have been that um, you know we better say this cuz we got nothing else to say. One of the Democrats in Congress who is being a point person on this issue, again, a very liberal Democrat, Rosa DeLauro, was on MSNBC saying that the administration dragged its feet on this issue. So I guess this is their belated attempt to do something about it. And I guess you can point to doing something versus nothing as a positive. But I think the fact that it's so little and so late And we're in a reality where the most prosperous and most powerful country on Earth is now getting dribs and drabs of baby formula from faraway nations because of really self-inflicted wounds and regulations here at home. I think maybe, maybe I'm being optimistic, Britt, but maybe it will open a few more eyes, not just about government incompetence, but also about the potential wages of overregulation. I think overregulation puts your puts your finger right on it because the one thing that may be eye opening to a lot of people they may not realize is that you know they closed down this baby formula plant the Abbott plant uh, because of suspicion that some kids got sick as a result of baby formula from that plant. However, when they when they went and ran tests and looked into this, they were never able to establish that the that the formula that made these kids sick came from that plant. So you have serious questions right from the start as to whether it was the appropriate thing to do to close the plant down in the first place, which is another example of the kind of regulatory uh, issues that we've had. We had it throughout the pandemic as well, where mm-hmm. you know they take these drastic steps, shutdowns, lockdowns, and so on, only to find out that they don't do any good, that it doesn't stop the spread of the disease in that case, uh, and so on. So, and of course, this is another blow to the prestige of the already damaged uh, CDC, which was responsible for this. Yeah. And meanwhile, there are whole varieties and brands, lots of baby formula, perfectly safe, that is sold all over the world that is illegal, literally illegal in the United States because of all these intense regulations. And so there is, you would think, available food for children that you just 
cannot buy or sell here. And that's another layer to all of this. Meanwhile, Britt, I want to get your reaction. John Harwood is now the White House correspondent over at CNN. In a previous part of his career here is that uh, he was at NBC, MSNBC, I think he or maybe CNBC it was. He famously asked a bunch of gotcha questions of Republicans at one of the primary presidential debates that he moderated. He tweeted yesterday uh, his analysis. and This is actually not even analysis. This is his reporting about the inflation crisis. Here's the tweet. He says, in Washington debate, inflation is, quote unquote, crushing families with scare quotes around crushing in real life. Pandemic relief has eased the pain. Then he quotes Mark Zandi, the Moody's economist who's a big, you know, uh, spend your way out of everything Keynesian kind of guy. Quote, excess saving cushioned the impact even for lower income households. Households are, for the most part, in good in a good financial place. That's the quote that he highlights. Well, I guess making it seem like it's out of touch for people in Washington to talk about families getting crushed by inflation and how really in real reality that I guess Mark Zandi and John Harwood know all about, uh, families are actually in a good financial place and government spending has eased the pain. First of all, a lot of people are saying the government spending on the pandemic caused the inflation pain, was one of the causes. And there's a new CBS News poll out just yesterday asking people about the economy. 69% of Americans say the economy is bad. 74% of Americans say Things in America are going badly. That's what the American people are saying. But I guess you have the Washington elite CNN correspondent, the White House correspondent, John Harwood over at CNN, uh, explaining to the American people how wrong they are. And actually, they're not getting crushed and they're in a good spot. You know, what's striking about this is that this is pure, simple White House spin. Um you're absolutely right that that the uh, government spending during the pandemic and after it, the pandemic had begun to ease is widely blamed, I think properly so, for this outbreak of inflation that we're having. Uh, people know they're hurting. Uh, I suppose you could construct a scenario under which you say, well, you see, it would be worse if we hadn't spread all that money around out there because people wouldn't even have any money to spend. Well, when people are looking at, you know, people who have money in their pockets, and there are people, plenty of people who do, are telling you that they're having a terrible time, um, you wouldn't think anybody, you know, in their right mind would put out that sort of spin, but apparently someone did. Uh, yes, and I can't blame the White House for attempting it, right? It's their job to be flax and to say, all right, let's try to put the happiest face on this as possible. And I guess we can sort of explain that it's maybe not so bad, although, again, I think that that's really, really, really tone deaf and counterproductive politically. But they're not a terribly adept political team over there. So they were just trying to do something. But, yes, you have the White House correspondent at CNN just amplifying, sort of laundering the spin for them and saying, oh, actually, here's here's an this is the same guy, by the way, who wrote a few weeks ago that Biden has no control. He's just like at the mercy of events. He can't do anything about any of this. Uh, and it was, I think, 17 paragraphs in or something where they said there was this bipartisan economic consensus that maybe 
there was too much spending that that drove some of it. He he covers his bases with a line here or two, you know, there or another place buried way down. But th- that that tweet that I quoted to you, Britt, is almost like a a work of art, using scare quotes around uh, crushing inflation. Uh, and just informing people from an economist that actually they're, for the most part, in a good place. While the American people most certainly know that they are not, and roughly two-thirds of them are living paycheck to paycheck. But uh, certainly there are some people earning a lot of money who are in a good place, um, and maybe they haven't traveled outside of a certain segment of the country in a very, very long time. Britt, on a very different topic, but also involving this administration and this president, He is on his swing out in Asia, and speaking in Japan, President Biden was asked a question about Taiwan and what the U.S. might be willing to do should the Chinese Communist Party attack Taiwan. Here was that exchange in Cut 1. You didn't want to get involved in the Ukraine conflict militarily for obvious reasons. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are? That's a commitment we made. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Response, yes. Reporter somewhat taken aback, you are. And Biden pauses a moment and says, that's the commitment we made. Now, Britt, feel free to weigh in on whether that is a good answer, a bad answer, the right thing, the wrong thing. I think there's compelling arguments on both sides of the policy question. But this is now, the New York Post points out, the third time in nine months that Biden has publicly talked about defending Taiwan if they're under attack. And then within minutes or hours, his administration, his White House, walks back the claim saying that's not what he meant with the White House in this most recent instance saying uh, that our policy, quote, has not changed. What is going on here? Is Biden's instinct to defend Taiwan so he keeps saying it and his team says, no, we can't actually say that out loud, so let's walk it back. Is there some sort of policy fight playing out behind the scenes within the administration? Does he forget that he's not supposed to say that? Does he know he's not, but he says it anyway? Three times in nine months on something pretty significant like that seems curious to me. I don't think there's a policy fight going on. I think the policy is the same policy that we've had. We were ambiguous about how we would support or help Taiwan to defend itself. Um, We've never included the possibility of introduction of American troops to defend Taiwan. The the possibility obviously has been left open that we would supply them with material and equipment and weapons and so on as we were doing in Ukraine. I think that is the policy. I think that's been the policy. I think it's no doubt still the policy. I think Joe Biden is a senile old man who should not be president of the United States because he's simply too old and too out of it. And 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 these these things that he blurts out from time to time are simply the consequence of the fact that his faculties have faded, and he's you know he's always been gaff prone. But the gaffes that he commits now are of a somewhat different variety than the kind I used to hear from him regularly when I covered the Senate back some years ago. He was—he he often said impolitic things. This is beyond that. This is something else. This is a man who forgets what the policy is, who, can't, who doesn't think clearly, who doesn't speak clearly, and blurts things like this out. Well, you know, on his trip over 
to Europe a few months ago, this happened. We recall major things had to be walked back basically every day from what he said, including the apparent regime change call in Russia. That was minutes later they took that back. And now here we are the third time in less than a year where he's talked about military intervention or defense in Taiwan. No, no, that's not what we really meant. Uh, Whatever's driving it, it is quite striking. And uh, Britt, you did not mince words. You never do. Uh, and I think your position is pretty well established on that. And gosh, it, it it can be disconcerting to watch from the commander of the United States Armed Forces, the commander in chief, Britt Hume, senior political analyst at Fox News Channel. Britt, thank you so much. My pleasure, Guy. Thank you. Stepping aside, back after this. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. And last week we talked about the record-smashing numbers in April when it comes to border encounters. Nearly 235,000 at the southern border in one month alone, not counting any of the tens of thousands of gotaways. And one of the dates that we were looking at most carefully and watching most closely is today, May 23rd, which is when the Biden administration was setting up and anticipating a secession of Title 42 expulsions. They're going to end Title 42, which was the public health tool to rapidly expel large numbers of illegal immigrants from the country under a program that was instituted during President Trump and his administration that was pandemic-related. And so they decided on Team Biden that the pandemic has basically ended, and therefore the Title 42 removals had to end as well. And when we were down at the border doing this show, reporting for townhall.com from the southern border, every single official that we spoke to told us if and when Title 42 goes away, the problem will go from extremely historically bad to even worse, almost unfathomably bad. So today was that deadline, but late on Friday, a federal judge temporarily blocked the administration from ending Title 42. It was a federal judge in the Western District of Louisiana granting a preliminary injunction. This was part of a lawsuit by two dozen Republican-led states, first and foremost, Arizona, Louisiana, Missouri. So... I'm not sure how this actually all plays out legally. I feel like there's actually quite a lot of leeway for the executive branch to make these types of enforcement decisions. So I'm not sure if this is going to hold up. My inclination is that the Biden administration, the president, actually has the authority to make the terrible, damaging, catastrophic decision that they want to make here. But at least for now, they've been given something of a reprieve by a judge, kind of like they had on the airplane mask mandate thing, where they pretended that they were really against it and they were really mad, but they're not really fighting it that hard. They are fighting it in court, but in a way that might take a while where they could say, oh, well, a judge did this because the politics had moved so quickly under their feet that they were stuck in a tough spot with their public health bureaucrats and their safetyist base on one side and a growing majority of the American people on the other side. So a federal judge sort of let them off the hook on that question. Now we're seeing the same thing on immigration here where almost 
you could argue that this judge is saving them from themselves, even if it's just for a few days or a few weeks. I'm not sure what the timing ultimately is going to shake out as here. So between this federal judge, the previous federal judge on the mask thing, and Joe Manchin on Build Back Better and a few other things, the Biden administration is being saved from themselves by lone individuals. Things are really bad as they stand now on so many different fronts, from the economy to inflation to gas prices to crime to the immigration crisis, and the list goes on. They would be worse, far worse across the board if Biden and the Democrats had been able to implement all of their stated policies. Think about that. Sort of a disconcerting thought. But at least for now, Title 42 on hold. So that disaster will wait perhaps to another day. But it is still their intention. That's what they say. Congress could stop it. Congress could create an actual law that would enshrine something akin to Title 42. But it seems like they are nowhere close to doing something like that because that could be useful. That could actually be constructive and productive. And Lord knows they don't really like doing a lot of that, especially in this Congress. So that is, at least for now, the momentary update on a subject and on this front that we have been covering very closely now for months on The Guy Benson Show. We'll take a quick break. We will come right back. Josh Krasauer breaks down the political scene, the electoral scene. That's next. Stay with us. Listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show on this Monday from Washington, D.C. Very happy to have each and every one of you here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is always free. Joining us now is Josh Krasauer, politics editor at National Journal and a Fox News radio political analyst. Josh, good to have you back. Hey, Guy. Good to be back on the show. So a couple things quickly here. Behind the scenes last week, we tried to book you once or twice, and we couldn't quite nail it down. And I knew that you were under the weather, you were battling COVID, maybe fatigued. I did not know how rough it got for you last week. Are you okay now? Yeah, I am doing much better, and thanks thanks for asking, Guy. Yeah, you know, the, 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 this COVID, I mean, it, it, it's no joke. It, it, uh, I thought I just had sort of a, a mild flu for a couple of days, and then it just turned into a really bad sore throat and, you know, slightly low oxygen and, and having trouble, like, just you know, coughing and just having so much pain in my upper respiratory system. So um, I took the Paxlovid that, that Dr. Ja, a lot of, a lot of the doctors are recommending. It, it was a game changer, um, and things turned pretty quickly. But um, it was it was a pretty uh, you know scary experience and uh, you know, not something I want to have to go through again. So I know the COVID cases are rising. I don't think this is quite as serious as the earlier waves that we've, we've gone through, and we have the tools, thankfully now, to, with vaccines and, and the, these antivirals. But boy, I was I was not expecting to be hit as hard as I was with this case of COVID. Did you have to go to a hospital to get that antiviral? Like, how did that all work? The antiviral was actually pretty easy to get. The, the bigger challenge I faced was 
my doctor wanted me to get chest x-rays to see if like there was an issue with my oxygen and I had to go to the hospital for that and I had to wait an hour just to check in in the hospital and then there was no isolation or preference for people who had COVID. They didn't separate people out with emergencies at the ER. And I was literally waiting like five or six hours just to get an X-ray to get medicine. They ended up prescribing another uh, corticosteroid that I ended up taking, which helped also very very quickly. But you know, I was literally miserable <laughs> waiting six hours in a hospital lobby, you know, having trouble breathing and just trying to to get through that period wow. of time. Wow, like actual trouble breathing? Like was that well, something you were really I mean, feeling? I don't want to. I don't want to. I, I think you know, I, I was wearing a N95 mask. I'm indoors with a lot of people. It was you know, it was warm. Um, I, right. I literally had to step outside and just like take a deep. You know, I, I don't think I was. Thankfully, like my lungs were in, in good enough shape that I, I don't think I would have had to deal with anything truly, truly chaotic. But um, it, it was not uh, a good experience. It was definitely the sickest I felt in a long time. Would that count? Now I'm just curious because we talk about cases, we talk about hospitalizations. Would that count as a COVID hospitalization because you had to go there in the stats, or was that not something you were really thinking about? You're like, just get me some medicine. I don't think they did not admit me, and and the good news was that they did the X-ray. There was, you know, a little bit of like scarring on the lungs, but it wasn't enough, thankfully, to, to get me admitted. They just needed to give me the medicine. I mean, it really was an indictment my whole experience of the, of the healthcare system that, you know, instead of, it shouldn't take six hours to get an x-ray and to get the medicine you need to, to, to deal with COVID. But literally, I, I wasn't isolated from any, you know, they didn't have a special COVID uh, division at the hospital. They were, the lobby was just packed with people. They didn't really, um, you know, I mean, I, the, the people who had, didn't have very serious injuries were lumped in with people who had, had emergencies uh, like myself. And, you know, it, it shouldn't take six hours to get the medicine you need to get the x-ray you need to, to get, get treated. But that, that was what I had to deal with. Last thing I, I want to ask you, a friend of mine had COVID before we had vaccines, then had the full vaccine process, including a booster, and then got it again. And the second round was somehow worse than the first round, which I don't think is necessarily typical but part of what's scary about this disease is it affects people differently. Had you had it before? I, I assume you were at least somewhat vaccinated, and I don't want to push you on any topic that you're not comfortable talking about. I'm just wondering what, what your situation was. Yeah, no, I'm happy to, happy to share. I mean, so I'm, I'm vaccinated and, and boosted. Um, I had not had it before. In fact, I thought I was somewhat bulletproof because, you know, you know, you think we're getting back to normal. You avoided getting it through all, all these different waves. Um, and I had just gone on a – I was actually at a wedding a few days before, so I, it's probably where I ended up catching it on, on the flight um, or, or on, on the trip at some point. Um, but, but yeah, like, uh, you know, you kind of think you get past a year and a half of this, and, and Omicron is, is clearly not, not as bad or at least much more manageable than it was when we had Delta and we didn't have any vaccines or didn't have any, any, any antivirals. But, um, yeah, it was the first time I got it, and I, I'm fully boosted. So, you know, I got, got both both – Two doses of the vaccine and the and the boost. Um, so I, again, I wasn't. Well, I'm not shocked that I, I, I could have gotten it, but it certainly well, I wasn't expecting to get it. Oh, I think it's the severity of it that surprises me. I'm not surprised that you got it because we know now really that the vaccines don't prevent transmission, but they do prevent more serious cases. And yours was. It sounds based on your description like it was verging on a severe case, not quite fully there, but still unpleasant and unsettling enough to have to go get, you know, antiviral treatments. 
that's a really good way of, of, of describing it. And, uh, um, and, and there are a lot of members of my family that have gotten it and during the same time, and none of them had. You know, they were all much milder cases. So, yeah, it definitely was relatively more serious than, than those who else, other folks we knew who, who have gotten it around the same time. And now you're bouncing back, back into the news cycle. And, of course, it's a very busy one in terms of what you do and looking at specific races and trends and the fundamentals surrounding election cycles and that sort of thing. First of all, just a a quick reflection on your part. We've talked about this a few different times. We are now almost a week out from the Pennsylvania primaries, and we still don't even have an initial final tally with an initial winner on the Republican Senate race side to then potentially trigger a recount. We're not even at that point yet. Six days later, it seems to me that this really ought to be considered unacceptable in a country like ours, and yet it kind of feels weirdly dysfunctional and normal, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, Pennsylvania got a lot of attention for all kinds of reasons because of its election vote counting. But one of the for, for election reformers, for people who care about how elections are administered, it, it was really frustrating because there were a lot of laws passed uh, in the last year or two that, that made it difficult for the count to be done efficiently, for, for, for votes to be counted in a timely and effective and efficient manner. Um, one, one other state that's having issues counting votes, too, is Oregon. Oregon uh, still hasn't declared a winner in, in this kind of big congressional race, Kirk Schrader and a, and a more mm-hmm. progressive challenger. They passed a law in the last year, Guy, that basically allows ballots to be coming in after Election Day. They have to be cast before Election Day, but they can come into the you know various voting um, you know offices after then. So it, it basically is like California when it takes days and days and days to count the vote, and we still have many, many thousands of votes not counted in a lot of these big Oregon races. So I mean, there are a lot of rules. Yeah, early, but there are a lot of rules that are designed to expand the franchise, give people more opportunities to vote, but end up slowing the countdown to an incredibly glacial pace to the point where we're, we're a week out of the election and we still don't know a winner in Pennsylvania. We don't know a winner in Oregon. Remember, California, and New York last year, it took weeks to, to find weeks. winners in these, these close races. The, you know, if if if, if some of these states, I mean, Pennsylvania is a battleground state, obviously. You know, we've avoided grappling with the, the implications of what happens when you can't count the votes on time. The Democrats in particular like to say we want to give you as much access as possible and open open up the franchise to you know, make it as easy as, it's, as you can for people to vote. But what happens when you, when you do that? It takes weeks and weeks for, for these votes to be counted. It's a big problem, and I think folks are going to be having to deal with that in the years to come. Well, and it also fuels the distrust and the conspiracy theories because the longer that the the tallying takes and the counting takes and your days beyond an election and there still isn't a count and an initial winner, I think it makes it easier for people who might want to be unscrupulous or stir the pot uh, or in very rare cases might have a point to say, whoa, what's going on here? And for people to say in the back of their minds, yeah, that actually is weird. This must be something to do with some realm of chicanery, right, as opposed to we've got all the early votes banked and counted. We can efficiently count Election Day. We've got reliable, quick results on election night, and there's some 
credibility to that. There's some force behind that and some finality to it as opposed to this long, drawn-out process where it's all sort of a black box and you're not really sure when things are going to happen or why, and then just magically you've got little trickles of votes and it helps this person. It just feels like it prolongs the pain and provides an opportunity for people to start spinning stories. I just don't know how this serves anyone's interests. It doesn't. I mean, and I think that is an underrated factor in creating distrust in, in, in elections and in that it's you have to be an elections expert to really understand where the votes are coming from and who, you know, are these the early votes or are these the day up votes or are these the absentee votes? It used to be a whole lot simpler. And you have to literally almost have a Ph.D. in political science to, to kind of, you know, figure this stuff out. And I mean, even even some of the most seasoned political analysts have trouble figuring out where the vote is specifically coming from and what, what to make of it. And when they can't do it, as effectively as they used to, it's harder for your average American, your average uh, voter, to, to to figure out what what's going on. So, I, you know, look, yeah, it's I think not a good thing. All the, if you can count all the votes in a night, you know, over on election night, and have a winner, unless it's a really close race, that that should be the goal. We shouldn't be counting votes after election day and figuring out winners. Well, it's, and the thing is, Josh, later. it's not just a goal, like some sort of aspiration that maybe one day we can devise a way to make that happen. It's something that we've done here forever. Right. You'll get a few really unusual circumstances with very, very close elections where there's a recount or whatever. But it kind of makes sense what's happening. And I know what between Oz and McCormick, as of today, there's about a thousand votes separating the two of them. So I get that's a close race. But we've been able to determine, call or at least have an initial count that gets recounted in some cases and then certified for many years and decades, I feel like we're almost regressing. We're going backwards on some of this stuff. And some of it's in the name of expanding the right to vote. But I think a lot of the people who make those arguments are also losing credibility, especially this week as the Georgia numbers have come in, Josh. So let's turn to Georgia when we come back. The election there, the primary is tomorrow. The early absentee voting is over. What have we seen and learned there? We'll get some analysis gleaned by Josh Krasauer as soon as we return. It's The Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We are back on The Guy Benson Show. Josh Krasauer of National Journal and Fox News Radio with me, talking about the Georgia primary elections. They are tomorrow. And leading up to it, there's been a huge uptick, a massive uptick in early and absentee voting. And this comes in the face of a prolonged disinformation campaign from the likes of Stacey Abrams to President Joe Biden to many in the media to corporate America who bought into the whole thing about how Georgia was doing something historically, truly racist and awful that was going to be worse than Jim Crow. And we've, in fact, seen the opposite of voter suppression. We've seen a huge increase in early absentee balloting in Georgia under the new system. We talked about it in the open of today's show. It just it, it seems like our institutions are under attack from multiple different angles in this country. And a lot of people make a lot of big claims on a regular basis that do not pan out. But some portion of the people still believe the claims, right? So you've got some people on the right who think everything in 2020 was rigged and stolen. And you have a lot of people who still believe that it was rigged and stolen in Georgia in 2018 and is being 
rigged and stolen this time because of voter suppression. And the reality evidence this round in Georgia is in real time disproving a massive national narrative that was a bruising fight last year. Some people might have their eyes open saying, "Okay, we were lied to. This was all a bunch of political hot air. But there are some people for whom these doubts are going to linger forever. And that undermines the overall national collective faith in our system in a way that, again, I think is really damaging to the body politic. Yeah, grievance sells, and everyone can spot when Republicans are, are playing up certain political grievances, but no one seems to understand when the Democrats are doing it for their own political self-interest. And, you know, Stacey Abrams even gave an interview, uh, I think it was in the end of the 2018 election, to meet the press, where she kind of acknowledged that some of her, her rhetoric on saying that taking away the right to vote and voter suppression was, was intended to get her own base to show up at the polls. Not, 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 it wasn't really based as much in, in truth. You know, fact, but it was literally a political tool designed to, to animate African Americans in particular to show up at the polls. It was a good rhetorical device. And, you know, look, that's what we're seeing in, in Georgia. You're seeing record early voting turnout. You, the Washington Post did a great story interviewing a number of voters at some of these these major precincts. And a yeah. lot of well, one, one voter in particular was quoted saying, I thought I was going to have to deal with long lines and I thought I was going to be obstructed in my right to vote. And it was the easiest thing I've ever done. You know, like th- there was a narrative that was pushed from Abrams as a politician, but it was uncritically embraced by a whole lot of elements in, in, the, in the media. And we talked about this at the time, Guy. We, we yeah. tried to fact check and, and, and reality check a lot of this stuff, but it was against the big tide of the coverage that was just largely inaccurate. And the, the, the truth is in the numbers. The truth is in the data where you're seeing a huge uh, upsurge in, in turnout, uh, high levels of turnout, especially in African-American communities in, in, in the early rounds of voting in Georgia. And I expect that to, to continue. I mean, the reality is that the only ch- the main changes that were made in that Georgia law were basically reversing the covid emergency rules of 2020. There were emergency rules for voting put in place to help people vote during a time when the pandemic was running rampant. A lot of some of that was reversed. There was actually some some voting that was expanded. There's more early voting. There there are other things that were expanded from where where they were before. But the the main uh, gist of that of that law did very little to to you know to change the fundamental rule right. of voting in the state of Georgia. And yet you would and never yes. know that by listening to the, the reaction and the coverage. Yep. For month after month after month, and it became this gigantic firestorm. And I think you're exactly right, Josh, that when Republicans play the politics of grievance, the media has their antenna up. They're like, look at this. Isn't this awful? Look at what they're appealing to, sort of the base instincts of certain people. This is really unseemly and bad and destructive and dangerous even. When the Democrats do it, I think the media is less critical because the media agrees with the Democrats and the media are the ones spreading the grievance eagerly because they're on the side of the Democrats. So the Democratic grievance politics aligns with the grievance interests of many in the journalist class. And I won't make you comment on that, but I I think it's somewhat undeniable at this point. And a lot of journalists seem to not care that their reputation and their credibility has gone down to basically zero among nearly half the country because I guess they are ideologues first and members of the media or journalists second. And when they go all in on a narrative, which then immediately blows up under the scrutiny of reality, it's just sort of like, oh, gee, that's weird. Didn't work out. Okay, next thing. 
And the rest of us who were trying to be honest about it all along are sort of like, yeah, we told you so. Will there ever be accountability? And I guess one form of accountability will be the elections in November, which are coming. And, Josh, next time we chat, let's get into some of the bigger picture stuff, because I know we focused a little bit on your COVID situation and Georgia and Pennsylvania. I want to talk about the House and the Senate and especially some governor's races. We'll put a pin in this, get back to that next time. Josh Krasauer, politics editor at National Journal and Fox News Radio political analyst. Josh, always appreciate your time. Thanks, Guy. All right, we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Happy to have you all here. I'm Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show. That's Twitter. That's also Instagram. And this hour, the happy hour, is sponsored by our friends at the Finnish Long Drink which, as we talked about last week, expanding across the country. It's very exciting. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can see where they are sold near you, getting close to now 40 states, so a huge expansion over even last year. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21-plus only. As a matter of fact, I was in Tennessee for the weekend. I had a speaking engagement on Saturday. Saturday night, I went to the hotel bar with a friend. I looked down sort of beneath the bar area in those lit-up refrigerators that they have sort of on the lower side of the bar, the lower half of the bar, and what did I see but long drink? So I felt obligated to get one, so I ordered a long drink, and I went over to meet my friend to chat, and a woman flagged me down, just a total stranger. She's like, hey, um, do you like that stuff? I just heard of this drink. Do you like it? And I said, ma'am, how much time do you have? And she's like, oh, do you know a lot about it? I said, oh, you've picked the correct stranger. So she and her sister, one from Michigan, one from Ohio, and their mother became my new friends. And they all got long drink. And they all loved it. So I swear that happened. We're just, we're an ambassador for the long drink. Wherever we go, we're never off duty here. (laughs) The Guy Benson Show. Joining us now is Dr. Nicole Sapphire. Board-certified medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor, and best-selling author of Panic Attack, playing politics with science in the fight against COVID-19. Doctor, good of you to be here. Great to talk to you again. Guy, thanks so much. And making me really want a long drink after I get home from work today. Let's go for it. I mean, and you're in (laughs) Jersey, if memory serves, and it's all over Jersey. So just go to thelongdrink.com and type in your zip code, and you can find out. Uh, the local liquor store or grocery store or bar in your area that sells it. Doctor, I want to talk about COVID just not quite yet because I've gotten a series of panicked text messages from producer Christine, who does in fairness panic (laughs) over everything. She is very, very worried about monkeypox. And I get it. The president of the United States is now commenting on this virus. What do we know about this disease? I think I've read 
in the last couple of days that it does not appear to be a novel form of monkeypox, which would be, I guess, good news. It's a virus that we know about, a virus that we understand. There is some speculation that it may have spread at least the European outbreak at some raves among maybe the LGBT population. What's the risk profile here? How concerned should people be? Do we have treatments for this disease? What do people need to know? Like, what's the level of alarm here that's appropriate? Let's break this down to the most basic level we possibly can. Monkeypox is within a group of viruses similar to smallpox. Now, that makes people, that raises red flags. Smallpox, you think of horrendous, horrendous, horrendous death. You also think of bioterrorism. But monkeypox is not smallpox. There are similar viruses, but they're very different fatality rates. But that being said, monkeypox is what we call a DNA virus, which means it's much less likely to mutate. Uh, Very different from what we've been seeing with SARS-CoV-2, which is an RNA virus, which mutates, which is why we've had such a difficult time having vaccines and other things to keep up with the virus. When it comes to monkeypox, so what they've done now, they've actually sequenced some of these recent cases of monkeypox to look at the sequence of this virus. And thank goodness, it looks like the virus is nearly identical with just some minor genetic variations from the very first strains collected in early 1970s. So that's a good thing. It's a very stable virus. Um, What else do we know about this virus? It can be transmitted in heavy respiratory droplets, meaning when someone coughs or sneezes, if they have wetness coming out of them, it could certainly be in that. Different than SARS-CoV-2 again, where SARS-CoV-2, the the virus that causes COVID-19, can transmit via aerosols. So then those go much farther, linger in the air much longer. But in addition, monkeypox virus can also be transmitted with body fluids. It really requires close contact for it to have human-to-human transmission. In fact, human-to-human transmission is only occurs in anywhere like less than a quarter, like 25% of cases. It is usually just from an animal to a human, and it stops with that human. Very few incidences of human-to-human transmission occurs. Now, it does look like there is a small cluster of cases. Um, that I think they said it was in a rave, that maybe it was due to sexual contact between people. That makes sense because if you are exchanging bodily fluids, that is a way, that is the highest risk way to actually get monkeypox from someone else. While you can get it respiratory ways, it's much more likely you will get it from open sores. If you think of smallpox, you think of chickenpox, they tend to get these ulcerated sores. And if that touches someone else, that could then spread the virus. So let's say this thing does continue to spread because I've read some analyses saying this whole thing could peter out. They could stop it in its tracks. There are occasional minor outbreaks and then that's the end of it. If for some reason this one is a broader outbreak that continues to worsen, if people start to get symptoms, and I know that there are physical symptoms like those marks on your skin, there are other symptoms as well, then what? And and how do we prevent the spread from continuing and promulgating further at that point, is this something where people can then be isolated, get treated, recover, and the whole thing gets frozen, or is it not that simple? First of all, I want to go back a second just to help producer Christine sleep at night because her mental health is very important to me. So when we are talking about what is going to happen with this virus, right now there are 
two confirmed cases, maybe a third down in Florida. Well, there were two cases of monkeypox in the United States last year. Most people didn't hear much about it. And we keep we do see these cases throughout our history. In 2003, there were 47 cases in the United States. Yet, does anybody remember hearing about those? So because we have a, a small amount of cases right now, doesn't mean that in the United States it's more than we've seen in the past. What is interesting is you there are those reports of the non-travel-related cases, which we just talked about and likely due to potentially sexual transmission. So as long well, but, as— But hang on, doctor, just yep. one thing. I, I did have some trouble getting in touch with Christine over the weekend. She might have hopped on a plane and gone to some raves in Spain. I don't know. <laughs> I can't confirm or deny that. <laughs> That, okay, that's true. But here's the thing. First of all, monkeypox, if you get infected, um, you tend to get more severe flu-like symptoms. So a fever, you know, it's not like COVID-19 where you have this long asymptomatic period and then maybe a little tiny cough and you have no idea you have it. And if you have monkeypox, you know you have monkeypox. You can be quite sick. You can get severe flu and then you get that rash all over. But here's the good thing when it comes to monkeypox. We have the smallpox vaccine, which is about 85% effective against monkeypox. And so if you are actually, if you are exposed to monkeypox, you have a known exposure, you can get the vaccine post-exposure, and it has similar protection as if you had it before your exposure. So that's a great thing. And the CDC already stockpiles smallpox vaccines in the event of a potential bioterrorism threat. So while I know the Biden administration has gone and secured uh, millions more smallpox vaccines, which is highly unlikely to be necessary, the good news is the supply is already there should we need it. But again, I think that you will see a bump in cases. And as it will peter out, in my opinion, because this is not a highly contagious virus when it comes to human human transmission. Are there last question about this? Are there treatments? So, you know, it's too late for the vaccine or is it too late for the vaccine? If you've got the bumps and you've got the flu like symptoms and all of that, does getting that vaccine still help as a treatment? Or at that point, are you just trying to wait this thing out with a, a very low death rate from that particular virus and the, the sores clear up after a while, then you go back to your life. What's that situation looking like? So the sooner after exposure you get the vaccine, the better. But there are also antiviral treatments that have been shown effective to, as well as just supportive um, medical care for the treatment of monkeypox. There are very good clinical outcomes when it is um, identified and diagnosed early. Um, again, we, we have we have evolved very much since the, the world of smallpox and even some of the monkeypox decades ago. So I think that, unfortunately, the media just loves to keep people in a, a state of panic and fear because uh, they want they want the clickbait. And, uh, you know, I, while I do think it is important to keep an eye on, and I do think it's important to make sure that we are identifying these cases to do what we can to stop any potential human-to-human transmission, um, I think with the increased awareness that it's Certainly, um, it certainly will not turn into anything that we've experienced the last couple of years. Okay, and maybe if you've got a rave planned in Europe in the next couple of weeks, you might want to hold off on that. Maybe you got some travel insurance for that, Christine. I don't know. We can talk after the show, Doctor Sapphire. This is something that I'm probably going to revisit at greater length on tomorrow's program, but I do want to get your take on it since you're here. We now are seeing an increasing number of school systems reimposing mask mandates on children. Boston never got rid of theirs, and they're still going strong, requiring masking while on school property. Based on their regulations, including outdoors, Philadelphia going back today to masking children in schools. 
Berkeley, California. You go through the list. There are communities across the country that are going back to required masking for children. And I feel like we're just hitting our head against a brick wall because the officials give these little statements to the press saying, well, the the virus evolves and so do we. And so this is what we need to do to keep our children safe as if we have learned and apparently in some cases have learned absolutely nothing for the last two years. How many times have we had you on this show, doctor, talking about the outcomes in Scandinavia or the United Kingdom or much of Europe or in Florida and other places that did not have required masking in schools or private schools? The list goes on in a huge worldwide experiment where we knew that there wasn't really a benefit, especially among younger children, to have them wearing masks. Then on top of that, we have all the clinical studies about the downsides of forcible masking for kids. We have the studies showing whether it's in Colorado or Finland or we've talked about a number of these Spain studies that have come out showing that the masking of kids does not make a difference. And yet here we are. There is an uptick in certain communities, and it seems like it's just this built-in knee-jerk reaction that it doesn't matter what the science shows at all. It doesn't matter what we've learned. The masks come back on, children first, at the slightest sign of trouble. And I just don't even know what to say about it at this point beyond it seems almost sadistic and cruel to me. Well, it's it's optics, right? When you start seeing reports of um, rising cases, all of a sudden local politicians and policymakers feel that they have to do something. Uh, but that is unfortunately um, a result of the mentality for the last two years because we have continued to focus on a rise of cases. And unfortunately, the knee-jerk reflex is to put masks back on children despite the fact that there is no – uh, there's no proven benefit with any legitimate studies demonstrating a clinical benefit to children wearing masking in schools. I mean, it's just at this point, it is settled science. Whether people want to acknowledge it or not, you know, that's an entirely different story. When we are at where we are at right now with the current variant of SARS-CoV-2, with about 75 percent, maybe even more children with some level of immunity from the vaccine, whether from prior infection, or I mean, sorry, immunity from the virus, whether from prior infection or from the vaccine. I mean, that's the CDC stating that, that over 75% of children have some sort of immunity. The severe risk of the, to these children is virtually zero when it comes to risk of death. And yet, and then couple that with the fact that these children are inappropriately wearing single-layer cloth masks in schools, which also have zero demonstrable benefit to reducing transmission and improving clinical outcomes. And, and all of your, all this shows is just is political posturing. It has nothing to do with public health. And it's a complete failure of our public health system not to stand up against it. Yeah, especially because there was a story about it in the New York Times today about Philadelphia bringing back the mask mandate in schools. And here's a line from it, quote, bringing back a mask order would seem to be in line with federal recommendations. And to me, that is not so much a defense or a justification for what the city has done in Philadelphia, but rather an indictment of the federal recommendations, which fly in the face, as you just described in depth, of the actual science and data, which seems like an afterthought. The well-being of children, the actual science, these are afterthoughts to the political science, the optics, and what makes certain people in charge feel good, feel powerful, feel like they are doing something. And round and round we go. And it just absolutely drives me crazy. 
and we'll keep shouting from the rooftops about the data and the science as long as we have to, and obviously we still have to because it's not getting through to a lot of people. Dr. Nicole Sapphire, our guest, medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor here on The Guy Benson Show. Doctor, thank you so much. Guy, thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. We will quickly take this break. Be right back on the other side. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the Guy Benson Show. Happy hour. Thanks for listening. You remember that incident that happened a couple weeks ago where Dave Chappelle was assaulted on stage while he was doing stand-up comedy? And Chris Rock, who was there, quipped immediately, was that Will Smith? about the attacker, which was a funny line, but it was a scary incident where Chappelle got tackled and the guy had what looked like a gun, but it was actually a knife. Well, the 23-year-old man who is charged with that assault is now speaking out. He's giving media interviews, I guess. And he says he did it. He physically attacked a comedian because Chappelle, in his mind, stepped over the line with stand-up material about LGBTQ people and homelessness. Quote, I identify as bisexual, and I wanted him to know what he said was triggering, he said in a jailhouse interview. Well, he wanted him to know that. He didn't send a tweet. He didn't shoot an email off to someone. He ran on stage and tackled him while in possession of a deadly weapon. And he actually uses the word triggering. He is blaming the victim here. I couldn't care less what this guy says in his own mind to justify his attack. He committed a crime due to comedy. He committed an assault because he didn't like some comedy. He said that Chappelle should be more sensitive. Oh, really? Says the violent assailant. Now, he was not charged with a felony for this assault because they're very weak on crime, if not pro-crime, in L.A. with the D.A. down there. However... This guy is also facing charges of attempted murder in an unrelated incident in which he allegedly stabbed a roommate. So we've got an attempted murder charge against this guy and then just a misdemeanor. Obviously, this is a dangerously violent person. I don't know why we are interviewing him for his insights into what Dave Chappelle did wrong with his jokes with the words that were said, when this guy uses violence to settle differences, now allegedly more than once. But this attacker, whose name I'm not going to use, is playing the victim, of course, because that's what we do in this society. It's like, I'm a single dad. I have a son. It's a struggle. I wanted Dave Chappelle to know it's not a joke. No one's laughing. Some of the jokes are funny. This is criminal assault from a dangerous, violently inclined person. In no way should this person be lionized at all. And people who do anything like this, attacking performers on stage, we should throw the book at those people. But I guess certain crimes come with a certain degree of impunity, depending on where you live and what kind of community you reside in. We've got a break. We'll take it real quick. We'll come right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, it's the happy hour. Earlier in our first hour today, I guess a slightly less happy hour, but a good one nonetheless, we welcome back our friend and colleague Molly Hemingway of The Federalist and a Fox News contributor. We had a lot to talk about, pretty wide-ranging chat. Here's part of it. Listen. 
Let's talk about the Sussman trial and this development just in the last few days about what the former campaign manager for Hillary Clinton admitted at trial, admitted on the record, Robbie Mook was talking about the or at least one tentacle, one element of the whole Russia story that the left and the media told us for many years. And he confirmed that a leak on one debunked part of it was approved specifically personally by Hillary Clinton herself. If you would, just give us your thoughts on that development and then what you're making overall of this trial thus far as it plays out. Well, mostly what I like about the trial is the stuff just like what you mentioned. You get under oath testimony from people confirming what you know some of us knew and some of us had reported, but that hadn't been widely known, like that Hillary Clinton was personally involved in spreading and promulgating this Russia collusion hoax. Now, most of the time when we think about the Russia collusion hoax, we might think of that made up phony dossier with allegations, dramatic allegations that never quite uh, were borne out. But a big early part of it was this thing called the Alpha Bank, where supposedly the Trump team had a secret server connecting with Russia. And she was personally involved, according to her campaign manager, with getting with uh, running to the media with that. Also, Jake Sullivan, the current uh, national security advisor, was the one who was used to kind of um, put this out there even though they admit themselves that they didn't necessarily believe this stuff to be true. They had no reason, uh, by the way, no ability uh, to confirm it. Someone who also amplified it at the time was Nina Jankowitz, who is the recently defenestrated truth czar or whatever they had her doing there for a while. She bought into this and said the Alpha Bank story confirms the very worst that we believed about Trump. It actually confirmed nothing because it is not only unconfirmed but debunked. So – The disinformation industry pretends that it's about fighting disinformation, but so much of it is about spreading disinformation. And yes, Nina Jankowicz uh, perpetrated that lie, also the Christopher Steele lie about that dossier, also the lie that the Hunter Biden laptop was itself disinformation. So when, when people say she's a disinformation expert, you should think of that as she's an expert in spreading disinformation. Certainly oh, yeah, no, she, she's like – I've likened her jokingly to kind of O.J. Simpson tracking down the real killer, right? That's, that's what this is. <laughs> Yeah, she's uh, she's she's got skills, but you have to jujitsu it. But I was disappointed to see that Michael Chertoff was the new person who's in charge of the office or handling the office while it's on while it's suspended. Uh, you cannot have these people who are associated who don't have. You just can't have this office. Period. And we should be on guard because bureaucracies like to exert power over individuals and over the people, and they're going to keep trying unless they are unless you have a vigorous fight from Congress to defund anything associated with this ministry of truth. Yeah. And so this is what I said, actually, from the beginning. I said I was grateful that someone like Sweet Nina was put in charge because she's so ridiculous that it's self-discrediting. If you put someone more respectable up there, like Chertoff, who I have no real beef with personally, but if there is the whole apparatus in place, I am skeptical of the whole thing. And, Molly, let's bring it back then to what we're now learning, some of the myths and disinformation being thrown out in 
stark relief, and, and you and others have been talking about this for a very long time. Some of this stuff would not really count as you know, a, a revelation. My full discussion with Molly Hemingway is available online at GuyBensonShow.com, also part of that free podcast, the entire show every day on demand for free, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a staple of my early childhood is now officially extinct in New York City. We'll explain what we're talking about and weigh in next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch, Monday edition on the Guy Benson Show. Our website, always the same, GuyBensonShow.com, the podcast, free of charge on demand every day. And if you're listening on the live broadcast, the bumper music is Payphone by Maroon 5. Because the final existing public payphone in New York City has now been removed. In an age where basically every human being has a cell phone, those old payphones have been going by the wayside and slowly but surely being ripped out of walls and phone booths disappearing everywhere. It's an anachronism. It's totally obsolete as a communication tool. And now the last one in the city of New York is gone. So we were chatting about this on our show planning call earlier, and Christine was asking if I was old enough to remember payphones or to have ever used a payphone. And the answer is yes. I am not that much younger than Christine. I definitely am younger, right? I'm not quite as old as producer Christine, but I am old enough that absolutely payphones were part of my childhood, like middle school in particular. We had payphones right outside the main entrance to my high school, and sometimes there were lines for people to use the payphones. That all started to change with cell phones becoming much more prevalent right around then. I was in high school 1999 to 2003. And, Christine, you asked a question on the call that I was already thinking about bringing up on the air, which was the old trick when you didn't have change, because how many high school students or middle school students walked around with quarters in their pocket on any given day? A lot of us didn't. So there was a trick you could use to call your parents from a phone, a pay phone, without paying. You would call collect. And if you are over a certain age, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you are under a certain age, you were very confused. Like I'm looking at Wyatt right now, who is shaking his head and chuckling. What are these people talking about? Pay phones and collect calls. So what you would do is you would call, what was it, 1-800-COLLECT. And then there was an operator, and you would give the phone number that you wanted to call, and you could record like a very short message, which was supposed to be your name. So someone could then on the other line say, oh, you have a collect call, meaning they would take the charges for it, right? They would accept the charges for that phone call, and it would say, you're getting a collect phone call request from, and then it would play your voice. And it's supposed to say, guy. And then you would accept or decline, and then you could have your conversation with the recipients of the call getting charged. But what we would do 
is we would very quickly say a couple words that conveyed the message that we wanted to give. So then your parent at home could decline the charges knowing what the message was anyway and then probably come pick you up somewhere. Like, it's guy, I'm done. Guy at the high school. Guy, come get me. And that was the little life hack that you would use. And I was known from time to time to do such things. Christine, did you use that same tactic? Oh, yes. But usually mine was, Mom, I forgot my history book. Come now. Mom, I don't have my lunch. Bring it. And she never would. Oh, really? No. Judgy Joyce Joyce would decline the collect call and not help you. She literally would say back, like when they say, do you accept? She'd be like, no, I'm not coming. (laughs) So this actually was the subject of a TV commercial. Was it you? Who remembered this, Christina? Or was it Dan who remembered No, this? it was good old Danny. Yeah, so Dan remembered, and I had forgotten entirely about it. It was a Geico commercial in the early 2000s. So we looked it up. It ran between 2000 and 2002 where it was basically a way that you would save money, in this case conveying extremely important information, doing the same little maneuver that we just described. Here was that commercial, early 2000s. You probably remember it from your TV, again, if you are a more seasoned citizen. Uh, Operator, I'd like to make a collect call, please. First name, Bob. Last name is... We out of baby, eats a boy. Hello? Collect call for Mr. Bob, we out of baby, eats a boy. Sorry, wrong number. Who's that, dear? Bob. They had a baby. It's a boy. Now, I'm not sure you can even say it's a boy anymore. How times have changed. It's a boy. I remember that he said it really strangely in the ad. As soon as Dan mentioned it, I'm like, yep. Because they ran that ad a lot. And it makes no sense to someone who's probably born, what, after 1990, maybe, I would guess at this point. Anytime in the 90s. Wyatt, what year were you born again? I was born in 2000. Wow. So this TV ad was airing when you were an infant. You don't remember the ad? No. And, and I, when I heard it, when we were playing it before, I was really confused. Why Why did he say um, wrong number or whatever he said and he declined the call? I was very confused at that. But now it makes sense. Now you're getting it. Now that we've explained it to you, have you ever used a payphone in your life? I have never used a payphone. Have you seen a payphone? Yes. Yeah, I've but you never, never had an occasion to use it. Had you ever heard of calling collect? Had you ever called collect? No. I when, mean, this, this is like, I, I just like, even like you said, like going to school and having to, to call from a payphone at school. Like when I was at school, like we had cell phones. So you just would text your parent and that would be the way you would communicate back home. How old were you when you got your first cell phone? I don't really remember, but I know I feel like it was eighth grade going into high school. I think it was then, or it was definitely middle school. That's, I know that for sure. I just don't know exactly what year, but it was, uh, it was definitely, I mean, I, I was pretty young and I had a phone. Well, that would make sense because I feel like the more ubiquitous they became, the earlier people would get them. I was not allowed to get a cell phone until I had my driver's license. So that was when I was 17. So I was a junior, I believe, in high school before I got a cell phone. That was the big allowance that my parents decided to make. And then, by the time my sister came around, who's 12 years younger, she I mean, she had a cell phone, I feel like almost in the womb. 
I'm exaggerating, but it, it happened a lot earlier because it was a lot more widespread and common at that point. So if you were born in 2000, you probably had a cell phone at least by 2011 or 2012 in middle school. And by that point, you wouldn't really have any reason to ever use a pay phone. Wow. Have you ever used a rotary phone? Do you know what that is? That's where you, you hit the... You have to dial the number by pushing your finger into a little hole on the phone and then spinning it. Have you used that before? I've not used that, but I actually have one. So I do... <laughs> this is what, a, a collector's item? Well, from my grandparents' house, when we're cleaning out their house, they, they have a real, like the real deal. Like this is made out of like cast iron, like the, the metal and this wood box. And it's like a real deal rotary phone. And yeah, so I've, I've seen it. doesn't work, but maybe it'll work one day. My grandparents on my dad's side, I remember distinctly having a rotary phone, and they would use the eraser of a pencil to hit the number and then spin the little dial thing. And they had a little tiny room off the front door, almost like a closet. It probably actually was designed as a closet, but that was a telephone room where there was a rotary phone and you could sit down in a little chair, take a pencil, use the eraser, and it, it was very inconvenient to dial because you had to do each one and wait for the dial to come back into place and then do the next number. So these are things that, again, as technology moves on, they just go away. And I think you could now have someone who is currently in high school or college and present them with a rotary phone and say, your life depends on successfully placing a call with this device, a phone call. And I wonder if they could intuitively even figure it out. I don't know. Payphones also, just to be clear, were pretty gross, right? Those metallic square numbers, the receivers that everyone's been touching, often they're outside and exposed to the elements. It was not a very sanitary experience using one of those, although I'm sure our cell phones are gross if you think about it. In fact, let's not think about it. Let's all just not think too hard about that. But, Christine, I feel like you might have one or two additional thoughts here before we run out of time. I'm trying to think of reasons why Wyatt would have to call his mom, you know, from school. Like, Mom, they're spreading lies about Reagan in history. Get me out of here. (laughs) Or like, Mom, I forgot my hard copy of the Wall Street Journal at home today, and I plan to read it alone at lunchtime. Can you swing by and drop it off for me? Mom, please bring the pipe so I can use it for chess club later. (laughs) (laughs) Strictly not permitted in high school, certainly. Or, Mom, please come pick me up. I need to come home and have breakfast because I've just finished my walk, my morning constitutional, and I don't want to stay three more hours for when classes start. (laughs) That's, That's probably how Wyatt would have taken advantage of the payphone back in the day. Why would you keep trying to call collect if you knew that your mom would just say no? Just to be Christine. I figured I'd crack her, break her sometime, but no. No, my dad was nicer about it. He would show up if I forgot my lunch. Oh, so that's why, that's why you, would, you were hoping it would be him. Yes. So he was the one who got the collect call. You were just fingers crossed that dad would pick up the phone, not mom. Yes. And then, you know, if Joyce answered, I knew I had no shot. Unless it was like a pickup for like cheerleading. I don't know if you know this guy, but I was a varsity cheerleader in high school. 
That's a new piece of information, I think. Really? I think so. Yes, I was. Does not surprise me at all. <laughs> Top of the pyramid. That's where you're encouraged. That's where you're encouraged to be very, very loud. They want you, you know, cheering and everything. Were you were you a good cheerleader? I feel like you would be rogue. You'd be off, distracted, doing your own thing. All I remember is I always um, got in trouble. Like the head cheerleader, always, Christine, turn around, stop talking to the football players. Christine, pay attention. Christine, I mean, it's, it was constant. Uh, another layer comes off the cookie onion. Producer Christine was a cheerleader. Pom-poms, everything. Do you remember any of the oh. dance moves? Oh, yeah, of course. I remember my tryout dance. Well, I would be curious to see it, and maybe next time I'm, I'm up in New York I might ask. But I also, you know, I don't want you to hurt yourself. You know, it's a you know, hip dislocation or something situation. We, we don't need that. We need you active and, and working. So, uh, wow. That actually, it all, that checks out. That is very much on brand. At Cookies Jar 1988. Maybe you could tweet some photos oh, of yourself yep. back, like the vintage. Are they black and white photos? Oh, my God. From, but let me from just tell you, they days? were not the skimpy outfits that the cheerleaders wear now. We had, like, the big varsity sweater. You know, oh, we yeah, were... and then, like, like knee-length skirt. No. Like, like no. pleated. <laughs> they were pleated. They were not knee-length. Photos or it didn't happen. Meanwhile, Wyatt has really learned some things today, and maybe Christine can continue this educational process for him by explaining how telegrams work next. That's how she often communicated earlier in her childhood, but that has to be another day. Please join us for a special report. I'm on the panel, 6 p.m. hour Eastern Time, Fox News Channel with Brett Baer and everyone there. Hope to see you there. In the meantime, back here on the radio tomorrow, same time, same place, for The Guy Benson Show. Have a great night. It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.